You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. And on today's episode, we have a most interesting guest. He's not a musician per se, but I know he has a lot of guitars, so he must be able to play. We're going to talk about all that. But first, I'll tell you, he is the director of the Paramount Theater in Peekskill, New York. He's a manager. He's worked on ad campaigns. He's put on concerts. He's done so many different things. There's so much to talk about. First, we have to introduce him, Mr. Ray Wilson. Ray, welcome to The Rick Z Show. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. At long last, we finally got you on the show. I w- I've been trying to get you on for a long time. I think it's I think it's been about two years in the making. Yes, but nothing like that. We well, finally made it. Great to have you here. You're in Garrison, New York. Is that where you are right now? That's correct. Garrison yeah. is for listeners outside the Hudson Valley. It's about an hour south of Rhinebeck, where I sit right now. It's a pretty little town. I, I have friends that live in Garrison, and it's in Putnam County. It's a great little place. In fact, there's a, a lot of celebrities, as far as I know, that live there, just like here in Rhinebeck. Yeah, there are quite a few. They try to hide at the supermarket, but they're, but they're here. <laughs> uh, very much like Rhinebeck, but Rhinebeck has a little bit more of a downtown than, than Garrison does. I mentioned the Paramount Theater and that you are the director. Let's start there. Uh, We spoke a few days ago, and you happened to mention to me that you had 14 shows this month that you're putting on there. That seems like an awful lot of work. What does a director of a place like this do? Walk me through your average day at the Paramount Theater, and, and how much work does it take to put 14 shows together? Well, it takes a lot more work than people would think. When you're booking the shows, first of all, people feel, well, you, you make a phone call and you get somebody on the line and you book the show. Well, it's usually between 10 and 20 phone calls just to even get to a contract stage. So there's a lot of back and forth and you may want somebody, but they're not on tour and not rooting at that particular time. Then you, you haggle about price. So to put on 14 shows in a month is difficult, but this particular month is kind of a catch-up month because we've been we were closed down for almost a year and a half. So we had a lot of shows booked that we postponed and we pushed them into October. Finally, we thought we'd be open in May and June and July, and none of that happened, of course. But it's a lot of phone calls. It's a, talking to the staff, making sure we're well-staffed, making sure... You know, our sound and our lighting people are in order, our production people. There's a lot of moving parts, but 14 shows in a month is a little unusual. We usually try to do about eight or nine in a month. Mm -hmm. So it's been a very busy time. What are some of the bands on your roster? Could you mention some of them? Well, this this month alone, we've had the average white band. We've got a a comedian who just sold. We might have a few tickets left that sold out. Anthony Rodia. We have Almost Queen, which is a Queen tribute, which is just about sold out also. Great. We have uh, Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits coming up. Wow. And, you know, so it's it crosses a lot of genres. And we try to keep a mix in there because, frankly, you have a limited audience because the area is not that crowded, you know, not that populated. So you no one is going to go to five heavy metal shows in a, in a year. So you have to, you know, look to different parts of your audience. Mm-hmm. You also have an entertainment company, All Creative Entertainment. The mm-hmm. phrase All Creative, does that imply it's more than just music? Yes, it does. It, I was doing so many things. I was doing tour sponsorships. I was, I was executive producer of the MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour. 
I was doing Dodge Comedy Showcase, so a lot of comedy came into it, as you know, as well as the music. In my modesty, I called it all creative entertainment. It, it just, it, it just got to be so much more than music that I didn't really want to limit it. As I mentioned, you know, I, I produced over 1,500 concerts at the World Trade Center alone. Five-acre plaza concert series. The, correct, correct. Every, every show inside and outside the World Trade Center for about 15 years. Yeah, that's so we, amazing. Uh, what kind of artists played there? Oh, unbelievable. We had everything from top country artists like Rascal Flatts to Dixie Chicks, Keith Urban, to... We would do salsa nights with the biggest artists, Celia Cruz and uh, Tito Puente. It's, it's such a, you know, a varied thing. What I did is I broke it into eight different series. And we did two series a day, Tuesday through Friday. And we had an oldie series, a blues series, a country, jazz, and so on. It was, it was named uh, New York City's best uh, live concert series. That's amazing. And of course, it came to an end, as we all know, on September 11th, 2001. Yeah. Do you remember that? Of course, you remember that day like we all do. But what was your experience that day? I think I talked to you one time. You said you were on your way down there to work on one of the shows when you got the word. Right. I, I started a day off that day just answering some emails. And I answered one very mundane email to a guy at Bloomberg News. And he wrote back to me within a minute. And I said, wow, this guy really isn't very busy at all. If he, if he got back to me that quickly, and he asked me where I was. And I said, I was on my, you know, in my home, ready to go down to the Trade Center. He told me to turn on TV. Uh, I turned on TV and it was just the regular morning news. Nothing's going on. And about three minutes later, uh, they cut to the coverage of the World Trade Center. It, it, I answered the phone about a hundred times that day and I tried to call people in Manhattan, which there was no service getting through. Uh, so it was, it was a very odd day. And it, as the day went on, it became more and more surreal. I can only imagine. Did you know a lot of people that lost their lives in that attack? Yeah, I did. Over 20. Over 20 people that you knew personally. That I, yeah, that I worked with. I worked with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and they were they were in the Trade Center, and and over twenty of them passed that day. That must have been devastating. But frankly, uh, it still is twenty yeah. years later because the twentieth anniversary kind of brought back a lot of things that uh, from that day. Well, they moved the concert series after that point to the South Street Seaport. Right, I moved it over there. I yeah. remember that concert series. I never got to go down there and see one, but I remember it. And how long did that last? Well, with me, with me running it only, only about two years because uh, it just wasn't the same to me. Uh, it didn't have the same feel. We had a lot of great artists playing there, but it was it. It had lost some of its uh, charm. The reason I moved it over to the seaport is because a lot of people requested to continue a series of some type just to bring people back downtown. Because I don't know if you recall, but it was a ghost town after that for a while. People were I do. really hesitant to go downtown. And they uh, it's taken years and years and years just to get people to move back to the area and so forth. It's still hard to believe it even happened when I think about it. It's hard to wrap my mind around the whole thing. Yeah, it's um, as I sat there watching that day, one of the bizarre thoughts that go through your head was when the first tower fell. 
my mind went to, it's going to be very weird doing a concert series with only one tower because it, it hadn't occurred to me, you know, what was to come. I mean, it was just, I was, I was thinking small picture, but it was, you know, obviously a much bigger picture. Yeah, the enormity of that was hard to digest, I think, for everybody. It, it was difficult to even kind of conceive of this happening, even while you're watching it before your very eyes. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely was. Well, moving on to a happier topic near and dear to my heart, guitars. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned this in, in the intro to the show. I'm assuming that you are a guitar player. From what I understand, you have quite an impressive collection of guitars. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I was a guitar player. And actually, you know, that's where I started. And um, once I got my rejection note, notice from Fillmore East that they didn't want my band, I decided that I was never going to take no for an answer again. And actually, I, I still have that letter. Just because I love guitars, I love basses, I've, I've just collected them over the years. I probably have a collection. If my wife is listening, uh, uh, I have one number. And if, if she's not, I'll tell you the real number. Right. But, but it's somewhere, it's somewhere in the area of, of 40 guitars and basses. 40 guitars. I mean, you can't even play them all. Not at the same time. No, I tried that. It didn't work. Oh, it's really hard because they, they build up in front. Of I know. And it, it's, they get so far away from you. You know, Very difficult. My good friend, John Platania, who I'm I sure uh, you you know and have interviewed. Yes. He, whenever he comes over, he tr he tr always tries out new guitars that I have. So, <laughs> you know, you've done so many things, Ray. One of the things on my list to talk to you about is some of these ad campaigns that you did. One that sticks out in my mind is the Honda scooter, of course. Yeah. What can you tell me about that ad campaign? There was a company called Rockville EMCI. And I believe the EMCI still exists, but they were basically the company that started tour sponsorship. I know that might sound a little odd now because people take tour sponsorship for, for granted, but the, the original tour sponsorship with Jovan and Rolling Stones, Pepsi with Michael Jackson and Madonna and Honda with Sting, all emanated out of this, off, you know, this office on 57th Street. We worked on it. My good friend who went on to manage Cheryl Crow, we all worked in the same office and we just used to, to make up things in the evenings. Just say, what can we do to get, get a sponsor to come in on this and what can we offer them? And we kind of cornered the market on tour sponsorship for a number of years. And I was basically the liaison between corporate America and the artist. And that doesn't seem like so odd today because everybody adds for something or they're endorsing products and so forth. Right. But in the beginning, it was difficult to convince artists that, you know, because they thought they were selling out. And that's what, you know, they thought that's how they'd be perceived. So we, we basically went after artists that were mostly pop area. Uh, you know, the Michael Jackson, the Madonna were more open to it. And um, they did quite well with it. And we just kept expanding and expanding. And, you know, we were at one point we were doing 95% of all tour sponsorships and all advertising campaigns with music artists. Now, Jerry Weintraub, his nickname is Scooter. Uh, any relation between the Honda Scooter campaign and his nickname? It's actually Steve Weintraub, Stephen Weintraub. What That's Cheryl Crow's manager. Well, yeah, Stephen Weintraub. I have it right here. And I called him, what did I call him? 
You call him Jerry. He's the movie producer. I'm cutting this out. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so much for writing stuff down. I mean, everybody knows who Stephen Weintraub is. So where did he get that nickname? It was that campaign, I bet you, wasn't it? It actually was. You'll probably hate me for telling this, but uh, I, I don't care. Um, the, <laughs> um, yeah, um, uh, Sting's tour, I don't remember what year it was, but it was late 80s, early 90s, was sponsored by Honda Scooters. And uh, there was scooters at every show out in the parking lots and at the entry gates and so forth. And Sting would see Scooter, Steve, standing near the scooter all the time. And he said, hey, Scooter Boy, just jokingly. And for some reason, the entire crew picked up on that. And he's been Scooter Weintraub ever since then for about for the last 30 years. That's hysterical. Yeah. You know, Ray, you manage a lot of interesting people. I'd like to touch on some of these people, some of which I've met, some of which I don't know, some of which I've worked with. One person on the list that really stands out is the legendary Don McLean. Mm -hmm. Now, do you still manage him? No, no, not for, not for a large number of years. Okay. Actually, Don McLean, the reason I got introduced into Garrison is because Don McLean used to live in Garrison. I remember that. And I used to visit, you know, after after we would do a day at the office, I would come up and visit in the evening and we'd discuss strategies and so forth. And uh, Don moved out of Garrison about 23, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've been here for the last uh, 22 years. Don thought that Garrison was a little getting a little too urban, if you can imagine that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was getting a little too crowded for him, a little too urban. And if you know Garrison, it's not urban at all. But uh, no, where did he move? The tropical rainforest? No, no, he he moved uh, somewhere in the in the woods of Maine. Okay. So uh, Don's a very solitary person, uh, especially when writing. So he he really enjoys his solitude. I saw him perform one time at the Bardavon Opera House in Poughkeepsie. And, mm -hmm. I, and the, the only thing I remember about the show, because it was back in 1990, is that he forgot the words to American Pie. And I thought, well, there's a lot of words, you know. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how you remember them anyway. Just imagine doing the same song for 50 years. At one point, Don said to me he really didn't want to do the song anymore in concert. And I, he and I discussed the fact that people were there for that. There's no way he could skip that. There's no way. Although I do understand. I mean, that, that, yeah. you know, especially as a songwriter, you want to be acknowledged for some of your other songs. Yeah. Another guy on the list, fantastic guitar player, one of my favorites in the world, in fact, Mr. John Platania. You mentioned his name earlier. Mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you meet John? And do you manage John now? No, here, here's the way I met John. I met John uh, about... about 40 years ago, when he came in to play guitar for Don McLean. I hadn't known him before then. I, I know that, you know, I knew that he was Van Morrison's guitar player forever. And uh, Van was taking a little bit of a hiatus from touring at that point. And John, being from the Hudson Valley, thought it would be a good idea to come in and play with Don. And uh, he auditioned for, John, uh, for Don, and Don loved him. And they played together for probably nine or ten years and John did many tours with with Don and I, the more he the more he was around the 
closer I got to him and then we had we had so many common interests in fact John and I make references to one to music he and I laugh because we said in a couple of years we'll be the only two that understand what we're talking about <laughs> John's a great guy and, and John has a couple of great albums on his own yeah, excellent songwriter singer yeah. producer he does a lot of things I've worked with John many times and he's a friend and a, just a sweet guy yeah, he's produ he produced other artists that I work with as well. And working with him in a studio is just such a pleasure. You know, he just has a, a way about him that, that really works. And nobody can play like John. My particular penchant with John's playing is acoustic guitar, that Martin that he has. Mm -hmm. It's just, man, he makes it sing. It's like smooth as glass. Yeah. When, when John plays, you know it's John. You know it's John. Yeah. yeah. Very true. Gary Burke is another guy that I know and have worked with and admire greatly, learned a lot from over the years. You know Gary well, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Uh, Gary's a great drummer and he makes it look so easy. It's, you know, there's a lot of bombastic players that, you know, that flail about and everything. And, you know, and there's a place for that and, and they're great. But Gary just is so smooth and you don't even realize he's playing, but the, the song just keeps moving along. And I don't know if he, you may, you probably know this, but uh, he, he orchestrates as well. I mean, he, he writes horn parts, he writes yeah. string parts, he does all of it. And he's a great producer in general. Mm -hmm. But yes, I was always impressed with his horn parts, listening to his stuff with Willie Amrod or J.D. Coy or whatever. And I know those are all his parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, he writes the horn parts for Pro Professor Louie in the chromatics. That's right. You know, and uh, I don't know how long he's been working. I know Louie for a very long time before he was Louie, which I'm, I'm dating myself here, but what the heck? I mean, if I was rejected by the Fillmore East, how, how young could I be? <laughs> yeah, the mere mention of that venue. Yes, that, that yeah. right there. Yeah. I, I happen to have a very nice collection of, of their post, of Fillmore East posters. Everything I do has seems to come back to music. I mean, I basically my hobby became my profession and vice versa. It's, it's all, all comes back to music. Yeah, me too. It always comes back to music for me as well. You've managed so many people. I mean, one of the people that stands out, I believe it was your first, was Andy Gooch and the Andy Gooch Band. Yeah. I actually managed one band prior to Andy Gooch and show you how, um, how random the music business is. Name of the, they were a terrific trio band. They were great players and the name was Bullet and Bullet happened to start breaking the summer of the Son of Sam and with the, and with the 44 cal, 45 caliber killer. So needless to say, it was a short-lived band because the fact we couldn't get booked because no one wanted to have a, a band named Bullet into their club Yeah, yeah. during that time. Well, it's, you know, like, uh, it's like having a beer called Corona. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, uh, we ever heard that. Um, anyway, and then, and then uh, shortly after that, uh, the guitar player from Bullet joined the Andy Gooch band. They were looking for a guitar player. And Andy Gooch had been playing in the Hudson Valley for a while. And um, they were a very successful band in the sense that they, I, could, I could book them five nights a week. 
And that's, you know, generally Wednesday through Sunday. The guys asked me not to book them on Tuesdays because they needed some rest. But uh, but they traveled. They were, were in fact, we're, we're planning. We've been planning this for a while. We're planning a reunion concert. And I just threw the idea out to some of the, you know, in the Hudson Valley. And the response I got was remarkable that so many people remember and that so many people would love to see a reunion. So we're, we're working on that. You might know the leader of Andy Gooch band, Steve Patrone, drummer. I don't know if you know him or not. I don't know him personally, but I know who that is, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that you had compared them, not necessarily compared them, but kind of put them in the same genre as Twisted Sister and Rat Race Choir. Whatever happened to the Andy Gooch band? Why didn't they become a household name like those other bands? Twisted Sister went on because they got a recording deal. And uh, that's why a lot of people, a lot, of, a lot more people know them. Rat Race Choir was a group that played for years in up and down the Hudson Valley in Connecticut, Long Island, and so forth. Andy Gooch Band went to, when we went to do original material, people liked the original material, but they got so entrenched in what Andy Gooch did. It just wasn't as big for the guys anymore, and they, they faded away. The Gooch Band, you know, I, I'm regressing a little bit, but you know, people now, they, when, when a club owner says, well, I'll pay you $100 a man, you know, in, in 2021, which is an insult to every musician out there, because that's the same price that people were offering, you know, 40 years ago. That's right. $100 a man. The Andy Gooch Band used to make over $1,000 a night, every night. That was in 1979 and 80, 81 in that period. So I get particularly insulted when people say to me, well, you know, we, should, we pay them $100 a man. So does that mean if an eight-piece band is eight times better than a one-man band? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, That's one of my, one of my pet peeves about pay for, yeah. for musicians. The Hudson Valley, yeah. Yeah. And we'll get back to that topic, in fact, in just a little while. I wanted to ask you about one other guy. You didn't manage him, per se, but his name came up earlier. I'm speaking about the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson. What mm-hmm. kind of interaction did you have with Michael Jackson back at that time? People know, or they think they know Michael, but Michael was the sweetest guy and was just very easy to deal with. His entourage was not as easy to deal with. Mm. When, when you're as famous as Michael, and I don't know who, is, who has ever been more famous other than the Beatles in music, it, it just it tends to start insulating yourself and you surround yourself with a lot of people. You know, I can only say good things about him, but I, I had to act as a liaison between he and Pepsi. And that was difficult because, um, not because of him, he was willing to do whatever was needed to be done, but his entourage would always, you know, would get in the way. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that Pepsi commercial, because, you know, he had quite the mishap where he burned his scalp. I've heard Mm -hmm. it said that that was the beginning of an addiction that eventually took his life. Do you find that to be true? Is that just something people say? Is that a rumor or is there some validity to that? There's probably some validity to it. Uh, I don't know if that's the sole reason for where he went later in life. You know, just imagine he was a little kid who never had a life outside of the spotlight. I don't know how young he was when he first started singing in front of the Jackson 5, but he he couldn't have been more than six or seven or something like that. So he never really had much of a childhood. So I think that had a, had a big effect on him. 
nobody was more professional than Michael, even to the end. I mean, if you've ever seen This Is It, oh, yeah. the, uh, you know, the concert, his demand for perfection was just unmatched. And he could hear everybody, what everybody was playing at every moment. If someone hit one wrong note, he knew it at that moment. And he would stop the song and start over. The consummate professional, you know, and, and what, sold, what sold more than Thriller? I don't know if anything ever has. A tremendous talent, for sure. I miss him sometimes. I, you know, I didn't listen to Michael Jackson past Thriller. I listened to him a lot in those days. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I didn't really... But now that he's gone, I miss him. You know, it's like yeah. Michael Jackson was such a, a part of the culture. There's a piece missing. He cast a big shadow. Yeah. Well, this brings us to a topic that we speak of a lot on this show, music and musicians of the Hudson Valley. I always found this to be very ironic about this area, because if you're a musician like I am, like you are, it's a very difficult place to make money and to be seen sometimes, to find work at times. I've been playing for 30 plus years. I still got a hustle. At the same time, I've never seen an area with so much talent in my life, whether it's famous musicians, plenty of them live here, or it's session people that may not have a household name, but play on everybody's record you ever heard of for the last 50 years. What is your take on that irony of this area? I think that musicians in general like the beauty of the area. I mean, that's the first thing. They, you know, they see that and it speaks to them. As far as so many being in, in the Hudson Valley, even though it's difficult, but it's difficult everywhere. I've never heard a musician say, wow, just, just come over here to Des Moines and we'll get you a lot of money. It just doesn't happen. But the fact is, I think that people tend to gravitate. I mean, just much as Dylan and the band and Van Morrison and, and those folks, you know, gravitated to Woodstock in the, in the 60s. There's still a, a mystique about the area. And there's a, people get a vibe. This will be friendly to musicians. And you and I both know very few musicians make big money. But we do it not because of big money. Janice Ian and I had a conversation about 25 years ago or so. We were discussing how people are still in the music business and others just drop out. Her contention was that people are in the music business for either 30 days or 30 years. <laughs> Once you go past the 30 days, you might just stay for the rest of your life and just do it. Which is why people like the Rolling Stones are still doing it in their late 70s and 80s. I mean, you know, there's John Mayall is still out there playing at 85. And you yeah. say, why do the Rolling Stones need money? Well, no, they don't. But no. they need what music gives them. And they need the feedback from the audience. B.B. King, he lived on the road yes. know, most of his life. Uh, yeah. you, you have to have a passion for music. Yeah. And that passion is like glue. You know, it's, it, yeah. it keeps you in the business. Whether you get frustrated with it or not, it's about the music. Yeah. I worked on Eric Clapton's Crossroads concerts and BB was on the show. And the last one we did was at Madison Square Garden. And they literally wheeled BB out in a wheelchair. But when he hit the stage, he was still on a stool, but he wouldn't take the wheelchair anymore. Mm. He was, it's invigorating. Recently, I saw Tony Bennett singing at 90 and he couldn't remember much backstage. But the minute he hit the stage, it was like he lost 30 years. 
I saw Sinatra one time back in the 90s and he was getting up there, but mm -hmm. he did a two and a half hour show. He didn't take a break. He had no. a Jack Daniels in one hand, a microphone in the other hand, and just did two and a half hours like it was nothing. And I remember thinking to myself, man, at that age, you can't stop doing it. I mean, as you may remember, right. he did it right up till he died. I mean, he was falling over literally. And, and yeah. that's yeah. the power of music. Well, that's my joy in producing concerts, because uh, even though I'm not on the stage, I get to see the smiling faces. I get to see the joy in people's faces. When an entire theater or a plaza or whatever it might be is clapping along, singing along, dancing, it's just, it brings you joy because you see that people, they escape humdrum life. I mean, look at, look at some of the bands like a Springsteen or Grateful Dead that would play for hours and hours and hours. People never wanted them to stop yeah. because they, they couldn't get that feeling anywhere else. Yeah, it's uh, music is a, a, you can't explain it. It's worth more than the sum of its parts. There's something mystical about it. I, I think music is the last great hope that this world has. I think it's the universal thing that all people relate to. It crosses all borders. Yep, I agree. Quite literally, music saved my life on a number of occasions. I mean, not that I was going to die, but the fact was that the circumstances I would be in, I always gravitated back to the music, you know, and it was an escape from a reality. Music can serve so many purposes. The reason I have a large record collection is because I may want to listen to something in particular that particular day. And I don't want to go to Spotify for that. I don't like Spotify at all. Plus they, but. You can take it away. You know, I look at Netflix. I like Everybody Loves Raymond. You know, you can't watch it. They took it off. They took off Dexter. They took off The Office. Spotify mm -hmm. does stuff like that from time to time. You want to hear that music. You got to own that music. Otherwise, they can take it away from you anytime. Well, also, there's, there's something, and you're well aware of this, there's something about holding an album cover and reading the lyrics and knowing everybody that, worked on that record and people say well it's so much work to turn the record over i'm like well you know you don't you don't really love music if you think that's work right but i i want to be able to different moods at different times you want to listen to different things and you want to be, be able you want to be able to have it at your fingertips i mean i've i've gotten a little obsessive about it i mean you know people are quite happy with 50 or 100 albums but i've I've gone overboard with that. But um, the fact is, anything I want to listen to, if I want to listen to the Small Faces or if I want to listen to Spirit or if I want to listen to Dan Fogelberg, I just go to the shelf and that's the mood I'm in. Yeah, I'm the same way. I have about 2,000 CDs and it's like one day you're in a Vivaldi mood maybe, the next day mm -hmm. you, you want to hear the Beatles or Ray Charles or whoever. And here, right. here it all is, uh, five feet from me at all times. And right. that's invaluable. And another thing about albums, you mentioned albums, whether it's on CD, it doesn't matter what the format is. There's an art to the packaging. There's an art to the sequencing. People don't listen to albums in sequence anymore. They listen to singles and they, mm -hmm. they have their phones play it on shuffle or just random singles or whatever. People don't really listen to albums, at least like they were once listened to. That's almost a lost art now, but it's still very important to me. 
Well, the hope is, I know a lot, I do know a lot of young people that have gone back to buying vinyl. Yeah. Going back to albums. Uh, in fact, my daughter called me from Florida about a month ago and shocked me. And she said, Dad, what kind of turntable should I buy? And I was like, wow, that's interesting. And of course, she came up last weekend and decided she wanted to borrow a few of my albums on a permanent basis. So, but um, the whole thing is that there is some hope that people want to go back to a tangible piece of a vinyl or a cover or something to look at. I've heard young people, you know, say, wow, I didn't realize what an experience music could be. And, you know, instead of just pushing a button and saying, oh, okay, I'll listen to this. I'll listen to this song. I'll listen to that song. And a lot of times they don't even want to listen to one song. But if you put it on a record, you do listen to it. You sit down and you, and you actually listen. Yeah. And I, I like liner notes. I like all that. Oh, yeah. I, I'm hoping that people do get back more into other forms of music. I've, I've, I've followed this quite closely. I see people are getting back into uh, cassettes now, which, you know, because they want to make mixtapes. They've heard people say, well, these mixtapes are really great. They want to they get back into that. I even have a whole collection. I know it's shocking that I have another collection, but uh, <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I, I have a whole collection uh, that I'm staring at right now of eight-track tapes. Funny, I never liked them when they were in vogue because they would always just jam up the machine and never never seemed to work quite right. Right, and then but, you have uh, the clicking sound right in the middle of your song. Too. Oh, yeah, and then, you know, and all of a sudden it, it would change directions on the, on the tape. I, I know people don't, that haven't experienced it don't know what I'm talking about, but you would jam up your tape player, and then you'd, after about three hours, you might unwind the tape from the tape player. Yeah, in the defense of 8-tracks, too, though, I mean, if you have a black van with shag rug, man, you just want to crank some Chuck Mangione. What are you going to do? <laughs> Uh, I can see you've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> and my other pet peeve is that the streaming systems don't pay the artist. Owners of the companies do very well, but the musicians who create the products don't. I've actually gotten checks for as little as one penny, and I haven't cashed it, and I just wrote a note on it and sent it back to them and told them what they could do with the check. How do you pay taxes on a penny? Uh I, I don't even know. It probably costs them dollars just to send out the check. <laughs> That's true. You know, Ray, I want to ask you about something else because you're an extremely busy guy. I'm sure you always were. You're working on so many different projects. A couple of years ago, you had a heart attack. Right. Things must have come to an abrupt halt for a while. What was that experience like for you professionally and also personally? Professionally, I hardly stopped. I was 12 days in the hospital. And crazily enough, I was still on the phones, working the phones, making sure things were right. Uh, it just becomes a habit. But it slowed me down a little bit. Uh, although I'm, you know, I'm working out three days a week just to get back, hopefully, where I was. Working out with a trainer uh, three days a week, which is different than just kind of casually working out. It gives you perspective. I mean, you know, let's face it, we're losing so many of our music heroes Every day, I mean, you look you look at the at the roles and and you start looking at your your life and your age and you start seeing people passing away, you know, because it's not an easy life. It's not an easy life. It's it's um, the type of thing that you you love. It gets into into your blood and you have to do it. I felt a, a bit like maybe I should slow down. And in fact, I've actually sped up 
I remember Warren Zevon saying, you know, when he was really ill toward the end, they said, Warren, why are you going to the studio to make another album? He said, what should I wait till after I die? It's guaranteed that you're not going to be here forever. So why not, you know, do everything you want to do? Enjoy every sandwich, as Warren Zevon said. Yep. <laughs> How is your health now? It's fine. I will not recommend anyone ever spending 12 days in a hospital because if that doesn't kill you, the food will. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, I could talk to you for hours. Of course, I can't because now the show is over, but you're so easy to talk to and you've had such a fascinating career. It's great to have you on as a guest and I hope I get a chance to talk to you on the show another time. Thank you so much for being here and, and sharing this all with us. Well, thank you very much, Rick, and keep doing the great work. I'll do my best. You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. The show is produced and engineered every week by Josie Grant. Please come back next time, and I promise we'll have another interesting Hudson Valley artist for you. And we'll see you then.